Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, October 24, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, historians Jonathan Sarna and Gil Troy discuss Mark Twain's 1867 trip to the Holy Land. Good evening, everybody. This evening is like one of the restaurants we're seeing in this beautiful area where you have this fine pairing of wine and food. We're celebrating one of the great American writers writing about one of the great topics of Western civilization, Palestine, the Holy Land. We're celebrating a remarkable love affair between Ben Chappelle and all these manuscripts. And as I saw one thing after another, I said, how do you find that? How do you find that? How do you find that? We're celebrating this amazing partnership between the New York Historical Society and the Chappelle Foundation. Me personally, I'm also celebrating my friendship with Thea Wieseltier, um, who has been one of the key bridges between the New York Historical Society and the Chappelle Foundation. And, of course, I have the opportunity to share a stage with one of my historian heroes, Jonathan Sarna. So it's really going to be a... You're in for a treat. Jonathan not only is uh, an amazing writer, but as you're going to see, an amazing teacher. He can make steam travel sound exciting, uh, which I think you're going to see. We in the American history business always say you can't talk about 19th century America without making at least one reference to Mark Twain and one reference to Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, I think in the Jewish history business, in the American Jewish history business, you can't talk about American Jewry without making at least two references to Jonathan Boy. Sarna's work. <laughs> so uh, you're really in for a treat. Um, but I'm, that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm the caddy tonight. I'm just teeing it up for Jonathan. So Jonathan, let's start. Sure. I always say the historian's favorite text is context. Give us the context of this extraordinary book and this extraordinary man. Where was Mark Twain at this moment in his life when he wrote that book? Uh, let me say also how... Uh, Happy I am to be back here at New York Historical and wonderful to be with Gil. And I'm really grateful to all those uh, who made it possible. And and thanks especially uh, to uh, Thea. Um, So context. This is the young Mark Twain. He's not known. He's um, published his first book, Uh, which is The Jumping Frog and Other Stories, Uh, it's gotten notice, uh, but hasn't made him world famous. He's uh, gone to Hawaii and written some rather nice uh, travel materials about that. Uh, And now he hears big news, and he puts that news actually in the beginning of the novel, and that news is that there's going to be this uh, amazing once-in-a-lifetime excursion by steam, you, uh, uh, and that's really important. Sure, we all learned about Fulton and and, uh, how steam was 
um, uh, when you could be sailing on the Great Lakes. But the idea of crossing the ocean by steam, that's as much a revolution as uh, the flight of Pan Am would be uh, in the 20th century. And suddenly, places that you never could think or imagine going are open to you in time certain. It has a beginning, indeed. Uh, it tells you you're going to start on this day, you're going to end on that day. You can't do that with sail. And uh, if we talk someday about immigration, lots of folks who sailed to America didn't make it. But steam is going to change everything. And, of course, most exciting, the Holy Land is, is part of this excursion. Um, and you're going to be able to get there relatively easily in a straightforward way. We'll see when we see the slides how different that was from what it took to get to the Holy Land in the 1840s. So this is a big deal, that this is going to make a new kind of tourism possible. And the exhibit understands well that Holy Land tourism is starting really now. And Mark Twain wants to be part of this. Uh, newspapers had money back then, not like today. And they foot the bill for Mark Twain to go on this extraordinary journey. Now, we should say that initially there were other names who never made it. Uh, Beecher, I always wonder how the novel would have been different <laughs> if the Reverend Beecher had been on it. Um, um, uh, Sherman, I think, General Sherman was supposed to be there for a while, but... The, the newspaper, the Alta California, agrees to pay the bill. He's going to go. It's going to be luxurious, not the way it was if you were going to cross the ocean before, before steam. Now it's going to be luxurious. Uh, you're going to go to all of these famous places. Remember that Innocence Abroad isn't only about the Holy Land, uh, although that is uh, the piece that people remember. Uh, and you're going to go on this vessel. Now, this vessel also um, uh, has a history. It's a Civil War vessel. And uh, I should point over there. This uh, has a Civil War uh, history. Um, the Civil War has ended. And now they have the idea uh, that, that they can repurpose this vessel. Uh, and it will... Um, regularly make uh, trips uh, between America and the Holy Land uh, and Europe. It, it will be what, what they call an ocean-going uh, steam vessel and um, steamship. And, uh, and that's all new and very exciting. And uh, he, he wants to be part of it. And, of course, this book is going to make his reputation in a lot of ways. Uh, it is, as I think was mentioned earlier, the best-selling uh, 
volume of foreign travel by an American. And it remains that. It sells in hundreds of thousands of copies. But more importantly for us, it stimulates a lot of Holy Land travel. People read it, and they get a sense, this is a real country. Um, I can go and see it. And, uh, and it, it's safe, uh, it's exciting, and uh, I can see it kind of with modern eyes. So there's a lot of excitement around uh, all of this, and uh, it's going to change the world uh, in a lot of ways, uh, connect people closer together. Bedecker is going to publish a volume by the end of the century on visiting uh, the Holy Land. And all sorts of sites are suddenly going to become places that people visit. And tourism, which is not really part of the Holy Land in the first half of the 19th century, is going to become a bigger and bigger part of, uh, of the economy of the land of Israel. Well, let's zero in on the book. First of all, having read it this week, I certainly hope his publishers also covered the gambling and drinking expenses. <laughs> they seem to be quite prodigious yeah. there. Um, <laughs> it also turns out that that book is the best-selling book for Mark Twain in his lifetime. Yeah. None of that Mark Tw- no, none of that uh, Huckleberry, Huckleberry Finn, Finn or Tom Sawyer or Connecticut That was Yankee English business. professors. That's yeah. later. Yeah. Uh, tell us, what's the secret of the success? Why is the book so compelling? Why does it take off like that? And what, what's the kernel I there that we... I think... And here I, I... I mean, there are a lot of theories, and of course it's tone and it's irreverence, but remember, he will retell Bible stories in an irreverent way. And this is just at a moment when Americans are beginning to rethink their attitude and approach to the Bible. Uh, The Civil War suggests there are a lot of ways of reading that Bible, and there are all sorts of issues. And he has a genius, Mark Twain, which is displayed that he can be irreverent without seeming to be heretical or offensive. Um, So, uh, and this was also a new style of travel writing. Um, And, of course, it transported the reader. Most of the readers were not themselves ever going to get to the Holy Land, but it transported them there, gave them a sense and a feel for a lot of places, especially... Uh, those places, and yet uh, in a humane, down-to-earth way, whereas before, so much of the writing on the Holy Land, which Mark Twain has read in order to write this book and criticizes, is over-the-top, is, is designed to prove that the Bible is true and makes all sorts of extravagant statements Now, that tradition of making extravagant claims when you were in the Holy Land really is going to continue for uh, into the early years of the State of Israel. And one of the reasons that the State of Israel later 
is going to have such strict rules about who can be a tour guide and what you have to know and a big exam and so on is because there was no country on earth where so many people were making extravagant claims that this is here and this is there and you know this is the the birthplace of adam uh and uh and so on which uh you know he talks about um and uh you know here is where the dust this dust uh is uh and so on and uh, eventually they're going to crack down but um and and the reader can laugh cuz the reader often has been places where tour guides uh, are extravagant and certainly anybody uh, uh, who'd been uh, to the holy land knew uh, some of that tradition, all sorts of places that, frankly, were made up, as you know. Um, uh, and uh, he's already seen critically uh, what's going, you know, what is going on. Um, and uh, I, I think that style, which is also a journalist style uh, that he cultivated, uh, be- is going to become very popular in the second half of the 19th century. I like that tension, irreverent without being heretical. Yeah. So no trigger warnings there. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's take a look at some of the slides. Sure. Uh, what right. do we have so here? This really... Before Mark Twain, a man named Warder Cresson, we could talk a long time, but I won't, he um, uh, has gone on a console. He's written uh, a little-known book. But in that book, he tells you what it took to go by steam and by sail from uh, Philadelphia to Jerusalem. Uh, This book is uh, really before uh, you could go direct, and I wanted you to get a sense. Uh, It's 21 and a half days, but actually it's much more than that because who's going to make every one of those connections, and what it would cost, and so on. Uh, It was very hard. You only had to read all of those connections to know why you were not going to make the trip. (laughs) And against that background, pre-Civil War, one can better appreciate... We can keep going. uh, One can better appreciate why this is so important uh, that now uh, you can have direct steam. Uh, This is an amazing and, I believe, unique uh, picture of Mark Twain. He didn't like the picture very much, but it's taken um, uh, on the trip, and it's in the Chappelle collection, and you can see it um, uh, in the exhibit, And it's just, for those who know illustrations of Mark Twain, that's not the one you imagine. Uh, And it also gives a sense of where he is, and that's where uh, that that came from. It was um, uh, in that uh, that studio. uh, And that's the Goosebumps. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's got the name. It's Constantinople and so on. That's where that picture um, uh, is made. One would love to know what he thought of Mark Twain, but that we don't know. That's imagination. That's, of course, the ticket signed uh, by the captain, who he didn't like very much, as you know, and um, 
and and look at uh, this is not I I think Mark Twain, but it that that's the amount of money that that the paper put up. That's a lot of money. Uh, we were doing uh, back in the envelope. It's about ten thousand dollars. This was a big deal, uh, and obviously only the elite uh, could go on such a trip. Um, uh, and that's clear in the novel. It's exciting that they downloaded it from their iPhones. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, 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 there, and uh, this is the passage about Adam. Uh, one of uh, it's in the novel itself, but this is Mark Twain signing it, and uh, it, it is um, amazing. You know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, some of you are able to read it. Uh, uh, they, uh, how touching it was here in a land of strangers, far away from home and friends, uh, 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 and all care, who all cared for me, uh, there to discover the grave of a blood relation. Adam himself. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he goes on and on in this wonderful uh, soliloquy. And then the first edition, and you know, for those who had to read it in, in school, often they didn't include these amazing cartoons. But I think we have a slide of the, this cartoon. And there he is looking at, uh, here lies the body of Adam, in English, of course. Uh, and uh, here is poor Mark Twain um, uh, thinking of that at the grave of Adam. And this is his way of making fun of these guides who every inch uh, made some claim that the biblical story happened exactly here and with great certainty. And there was nothing that they couldn't identify. And uh, he has his doubts. And the reader. Uh, had his doubts, and that allowed the reader to to view tour guides uh, in a somewhat different way and uh, an exciting way. This uh, this is a um, a map of, of of simply where they uh, uh, where where they traveled and um, uh, the departure from New York City. They make multiple stops, uh, but most of our discussion and most of the exhibit is really the furthest reach uh, uh, there uh, as they move south from Beirut, Damascus, down to Jaffa, uh, which was the only port, really, uh, that was then available, and, uh, and then um, uh, you know, go home, basically. And, and, and Mark Twain, although clearly this was supposed to be the high point, you know, the Holy Land, you were going to see it, the land of the Bible. Um, uh, he's rather glad uh, to, to leave. And there he is uh, uh, on, on, on the Quaker a city. And, and they knew this was historic. There is a photographer there. There are these marvelous uh, illustrations. Uh, there's quite a big deal about it, much as there will be in that flight of Pan Am over, uh, uh, over the Atlantic. Uh, these are big moments, and a lot of change um, uh, will happen. 
And I, I just mentioned, um, we're going, and here it is again, a different um, a view of, of, of uh, the Quaker City. Um, uh, and you can tell it's a certain kind of steamboat, and you can kind of tell its origins from that wheel. But um, within a few years, you're going to begin to see commerce from the Holy Land. Holy Land, so for example, Jews just celebrated the holiday of Sukkot. Well, it's going to be uh, 10 years, actually, after this journey in 1877 is when you're first going to see etrogim, citrons, <laughs> from the land of Israel sold in New York, uh, which, which become a big deal. And again, that's only because it's time certain. Nobody's going to send them uh, products uh, if it's not time certain. Uh, uh, but now I've got steam, and uh, that is going to open up the Holy Land in all sorts of, of new ways. If you're heretical like me, uh, you think that the whole idea of returning to Zion is made possible by the, the fact that now I can go and visit and I can see the place. In the beginning of the 19th century, when people think of returning to Zion, we have it in Ezra Stiles' um, diary, oh, well, they'll go on eagles, or there'll be a big storm, and it will somehow carry them. It's magical. By the end of the 19th century, all sorts of people, so it's easy to get to, uh, uh, to Zion. We'll just take a steamship there. Back to steam travel. Exactly. <laughs> All roads lead there. That, that, that's it. Uh, and, and the steamship is Quaker City plays a big role there. But let's keep going. So he yeah. finally gets to Palestine, and then he exhausts his vocabulary. Desolate, dismal, <laughs> depressing, right. even bald. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> and he writes, I can see easily enough that if I wish to profit by this tour and come to a correct understanding of the matters of interest connected with it. I must studiously and faithfully unlearn a great many things. I have somehow absorbed concerning Palestine. I must begin a system of reduction. Like my grapes, which the spies bore out of the promised land, I've got everything in Palestine on too large a scale. Right. What that does Ma Mark Quinn have to unlearn when he sees Palestine? Right, and, and, and that allusion is to a picture that many of us have seen of two spies carrying an enormous cluster of grapes. That is the symbol of Israeli tourism. And, right. <laughs> but then he sees grapes, and actually they're kind of little. Uh, not anything uh, like those. And that becomes for him a symbol of all sorts of things that he's heard about um, uh, the land of Israel and uh, that he feels now, uh, I have to unlearn. And rather than uh, a Sunday school version, let's understand the place uh, the way it is. And there is then and now tremendous fascination uh, with the Holy Land but uh, he's insisting um, it's not exactly the way it's described, either in the Bible or by these books of uh, learned divines who tell you about uh, the land of the Bible. 
let, let's be realistic here, guys, he's saying. And that's, uh, of course, beginning a whole different view of, uh, of these lands. And, uh, in, in, of course, in other ways, it's reflecting different view of the Bible with all of the tensions that are going to focus on biblical criticism and, and, and so on. All hinted at here, I think, as a moment of change in how we, we uh, view something formerly seen just in heroic, holy terms, he's cutting them down to size. And he's also cutting his fellow pilgrims down to size, right? Yeah. And there's, 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 the, there's the role of so, Palestine there, but there's also the role of pilgrims, right? Yeah, there's certainly the role of a pilgrim. He didn't like most of Some of them, the younger they were, the more he liked them, I think. They, uh, um, uh, he didn't get along so well with many of them. That probably reflects his own upbringing. After all, he's thrust in here with very wealthy um, uh, people. Uh, some of them, uh, for example, one of them, and we're here in New York, is Beach, who actually writes, uh, he, he's an editor, and he writes the book on the wealthiest uh, Americans. Um, uh, and, and um, uh, you know, this was not the group of people that he had grown up with, and it's not a surprise to me that he's a bit uncomfortable with, uh, uh, with them. Um, and, and, but this is also going to introduce a genre of tourist, uh, of travel writing, uh, which is, you know, the, writing about your fellow travelers, writing about places in funny ways, very, very different than an earlier genre uh, of formal travel writing, I think. Yeah. So thinking about what we in the 21st century can learn about Mark Twain's encounter with 19th century Palestine and thinking back over the centuries, one of my favorite historians, a man by the name of Jonathan Sarna, wrote an <laughs> excellent article a few years ago about Zion and myth, and how most American Jews experience the Israel they see through myths. And here we also have mm. Mark Twain as the slayer of myths. Do you want to connect to 19th and the 21st century? Uh, no, I think um, how that plays out. In a lot of ways, um, uh, I, 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 American Jews, and I, I think in that article I was talking about Louis Brandeis. And Louis Brandeis, who is the... Le I have to mention Brandeis once every talk <laughs> right. in my contract. Um, uh, but That's the 20th century. Uh, right. Um, but, I mean, Louis Brandeis, although he was the leader of American Zionism, he went to Palestine exactly once. Um, by uh, steam. Uh, by steam, absolutely. Takes a boat. And, um, and he's, he's there for about two weeks. And he does write a very interesting group of letters to uh, his wife. But it's clear that he views Palestine in somewhat mythical terms. He, a lot of references to California. You know, it's like California, only smaller. Uh, if you know Brandeis, he liked things that were small, the curse of bigness. The, um, uh, and I think... Brandeis's idea is following Mark Twain. This is a desolate land. Um, we can transform it and make a kind of little America here. 
And the Zion of our imagination is, for Brandeis is everything progressive, including a lot of legislation that he didn't manage to get passed in the United States uh, that he supported. All of that is going to happen in, in Palestine. And American Jews very much had a myth. Oh, uh, Israel has, must have church-state separation, just like America does. And all sorts of other things that they imagine are like America. Uh, I, with my own eyes, I mean, it's not so different from Adam, remember seeing American tourists at the Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem horrified. Why are they praying in Hebrew uh, in Jerusalem? And, uh, uh, you know, we're used to a lot of English. Why not here? Well, that bespeaks a, a, a sense uh, uh, of the myth. Uh, and Mark Twain, too, is interested in that. And what happens when your myth is shattered and you have to confront the real Zion? <laughs> is, uh, for a lot of people, let's turn away entirely. Uh, it's not what we imagined. It's not America in microcosm. We're done. We're out of here. Um, uh, that's not a political reference, but it might have been. But the, um, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, instead of really getting to know as it is, uh, Mark Twain is actually saying, I think, we need to understand these places as they are. Um, we've got to uh, reduce our myths. Uh, he's got this wonderful line somewhere about uh, um, uh, that, that, that truth is very valuable. We need to economize in, uh, uh, in, in, in guarding it and so on. And he has a sense uh, that let, let the truth out and... Uh, uh, come and deal with it. And, uh, in, and and that, of course, is true in some of his other writing as well. And uh, there, there's something, especially in our moment, uh, very important about that, even as the lesson. Oh, what happens when your myths are deflated and how different people respond to that uh, is implicit in your question, I think. because when we talk about Israel and the United States, we're talking about sister democracies, but not twins. And the ability to appreciate the difference, the difference. and to learn from one another is one of the things I think both sides are sorely lacking. But we're not so right. good at learning from one another. But it is to read general. this volume to bring us back to, to uh, uh, 1869 is to get a sense of what an extraordinary change has taken place in the Holy Land, mm. I mean, most of it actually in the 20th century. Um, and um, uh, to read it today is to see what it looked like, um, uh, you know, uh, and, 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 and uh, uh, it's also to understand why Americans believed, yeah, a lot of people could move there and it could be settled. It's pretty desolate. It needs a lot of work. Uh, uh, it's a, 
an area uh, he felt that, uh, uh, with all of those descriptions, uh, was not fun to be in. Um, I'll I, I just add, and, and Ron Chernow is here, if you compare Grant, <laughs> compare, I have to say a word about Ulysses S. Grant, at, <laughs> compare the private letters with some of the descriptions of his tour, mm. and you get a sense of the difference. The public descriptions fit some of the stuff Mark Twain didn't like. His letters, Ulysses S. Grant couldn't wait to get out. Uh, it was cold. It, 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 it wasn't very pleasant to him. And uh, he didn't like many of the people who came bothering him and so on. Um, and there you see the vast chasm between the public and the private. <laughs> and that, I think, is something that Mark Twain was quite aware of. So a terrible question, because historians aren't allowed to ask if questions. So I might get drubbed out of the historical society. But if Mark Twain were to return to Jerusalem today, mm. what would he see? And what would he help us see that we sometimes miss? You know, it's a, I, I love the question because it helps us understand how different that world is. I, you almost can't recognize Jerusalem today uh, from his description. Remember, he, he's shocked at how tiny it is because it's basically the Jerusalem within the walls. The old city. He claims that what we call the old city. And he's coming, to, if, were he to come today, I, I, I think uh, it would be astonishing uh, for him. But what may be even more astonishing is how recent that transformation is. Um, uh, Jerusalem has changed more than almost any other well-known city uh, just in 50 years. Um, uh, but uh, it is worth rereading just to get a sense of uh, what it looked like to people who traveled there with a certain imagination. Um, it's not in this book, but it is elsewhere. Someone found some slides, lantern slides, that were given by a minister about the, 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 the Holy Land. And there's the River Jordan, and the River Jordan is enormous in this lantern slide. And it's perfectly clear that the lantern slide was altered to make the Jordan look more like the Mississippi, which is what <laughs> people knew. In other words, people were adjusting uh, uh, a reality to fit their image of what was true. And that's really what I think is being confronted here. Um, and, uh, you know, today it's a, a very different situation, although a lot of pilgrims are still pretty disappointed when they reach the Jordan. Doesn't, doesn't seem like Joshua and Jesus were doing such amazing things when uh, you see it, especially in summer, but still, uh, it's very different, yeah. But still, the power of that word, it's not tourists, but pilgrims. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and he uses uh, yeah. 
uh, that sense as well. Pilgrims, uh, the new Pilgrim's Progress. And so there is this religious sense. And look, it's a very interesting moment in American religion. Uh, we're approaching the 1870s when the children of all sorts of formerly religious people are going to adopt liberal religion. And uh, you're going to see all sorts of American denominations uh, split and have heresy trials and so on. Uh, and in a sense, that is because science and revelation are coming into conflict. And, and he is just anticipating some of that. Uh, what happens when your image of something conflicts with new realities? He says, travel and experience mar the grandest picture and rob us of the most cherished traditions of our boyhood. Um, and in a sense, he's also, there's something very deeply American about him there, right? He is the Connecticut Yankee in King Solomon's court. <laughs> That's very right? good. Yeah. Uh, that, that, no, I, I right? think... He's, he's asserting his Americanness. He's asserting a certain kind of American identity, a pragmatism. A, a, exactly. A, 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 and at first he does it in Europe. Right? And then it's sort of like Europe sharpens that instinct, and then you really feel it when he gets to the When he gets the there, year. and it's an American uh, approach, in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, to the world that's being uh, reflected there, and a healthy dose of irreverence, uh, which I think is, is going to be seen. And in a way, you can almost see an anticipation of the Scopes trial here, mm -hmm. which is going to... Pit, uh, the trial uh, of revolution. Right, the, the, the whole trial around evolution, and it's going to pit religion and its worldview against a modern worldview. And, uh, you know, you're seeing slight uh, uh, but interesting, I think, anticipations of that great clash that's going to be taking place in Ameri on, on the American religious landscape. And it's ironic, because in some ways, America today is seen as a more religious place than Europe, and I sometimes call it the Ireland of North America. But on the other hand, there's also that strong sense of pragmatism and no-nonsense and, and, and an ability to kind of right. to, to tolerate all the, uh, the, the superstitions and, 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 you know, of the Religion of the goes past. up and down in America in 1870. The 1870s, like today in some ways, is an era of religious recession, uh, mm. Uh, where liberal religion uh, seems to be on the ascendancy um, in the wake of the Civil War. Uh, that's going to change somewhat by the end of the 19th century. Are, are we, it's time for questions, or should I continue? <coughs> so. Hmm. Mm. Okay. Ah. Did Mark Twain ever go back to the Holy Land or write about it again? Uh, he never, I, I'm not aware of his ever going back uh, uh, to the Holy Land. There were, and you can see it in the exhibit, um, that because of the book, they announced that the boat will, you know, have a repeat uh, uh, of this, but um, uh, uh, I'm not, a, not aware of his... Uh, going back, there are references, I mean, in some of his novels to the Holy Land, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, and writings, but not, I'm not aware of his 
making other travels. Okay, here's a wonderful opportunity to plug another of your amazing books on Lincoln and the Jews, uh, done with Ben Chappelle. Did Lincoln's intention express the day of assassination to visit the Holy Land after his presidency have anything to do with inspiring this trip? Or is this part of the, just well, a broader conversation? I mean, I think what's interesting is how in this period lots of people are thinking, yeah, I would like to go there. Now, Lincoln um, uh, has all sorts of theological doubts, uh, and it makes sense to me. Uh, there is a whole dispute as to uh, you know, whether he really said it on his last day, but it does make sense to me that Lincoln would have wanted to go to the Holy Land as a way of exploring those doubts, many of which are expressed in his second inaugural. Um, and a lot of Americans shared uh, those doubts. Uh, but I do think that uh, Lincoln understands that now this kind of, of travel is becoming possible. And, of course, Ulysses S. Grant, the minute he stops being president... He's going to get on a boat, and he's going to do more than this. He's going to go around the world. Uh, so he's going much further um, uh, than this boat did, and that was very widely covered by the press. Uh, it's um, uh, There are uh, big photographic books and descriptions. There are probably uh, four or five different narratives of, of Ulysses S. Grant's round-the-world uh, tour. And uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, going to be a decade, less than a decade after uh, this volume, which really gives you a sense of how the world is opening up uh, to to Americans who had some means and who... Um, I had some curiosity. And by the time we hit the turn of the century, it's soon going to be common that Americans of wealth, let's say Americans from Central Europe, well, every summer will travel back uh, to, to Germany, to the old country. And uh, in, the, in the warm months, we'll, uh, we'll spend it there. Uh, that's going to end with World War I, but World War I is going to cut off this kind of travel, and people are going to feel it very much. That gives you a sense of how the world has changed from 1867 to 1914, which is not a long period of time, and yet somehow the cutting off of travel in World War I you know, sounds horrific, whereas no one would have paid much attention uh, had the same thing happened uh, in, uh, in, in, in the 1860s. And Theodore Roosevelt famously went off to right. Africa sure. on his great, you can on his see great that. tour. It was the kindest thing he ever did to William Howard Taft, getting out of his hair for... Right. And Roosevelt loved... Uh, Teddy Roosevelt also loved uh, 
uh, travel. I mean, that uh, um, uh, a lot of young people would go. Vander Yara, I think Roosevelt, uh, one of the Roosevelts goes. And, uh, you know, that's again possible because it's relatively safe. And a young person is going to go and travel and see the world. That will be a very common idea in the early 20th century. It's certainly not something that we can document in the middle of the 19th century. A sad question, which I think echoes what goes on in so many uh, headlines today. Was there any negative backlash to Innocence Abroad? So there are some negative reviews, as one can imagine, and you can see some of that uh, in the exhibit. But first of all, they were fellow journalists, but most Jealousy of the... Jealousy? Uh, it doesn't of, happen among historians, no, that ne- I know. Never. So, uh, uh, most, of, uh, most of the journalists, most of the reviews were good. I mean, that's what sold so many copies. Uh, but yes, there were people uh, who... Um, were unhappy, and uh, you can you can see some of that, and that's not at all uh, surprising. Um, lots of Mark Twain's work, some including the stuff that we consider classic, uh, was criticized uh, in its time. It's good to remind students: don't worry so much about the reviews. Even Mark Twain got bad reviews. <laughs> Do you think that Mark Twain's trip to the Holy Land influenced his later writing? It's a good they, question. It's by a way. great. It's Thank a you. great. It's a very good question. I think that some of the well, I, I say a couple of things. First of all, and we haven't touched on that, the story of Mark Twain and the Jews is a big story, and he is very unusual in his sympathy for the Jews. Now, most people think, oh, there's that famous essay concerning the Jews, and and then he writes a a kind of follow-up, and we know that he had a relationship with Simon Wolf, the great Jewish leader. But it's much more than that. When Mark Twain spends time in Vienna uh, later on in the 19th century... Most of the people who he interacts with are the cultural leaders who are Jewish. Um, and then his daughter is going to marry um, a, a Russian Jew who's a conductor and a musician. And she reports that uh, Mark Twain was uh, you know, happy about it. Uh, um, uh, had no problem uh, with it. So this man has a very liberal view of, of Jews. I can't tell you how much of that is shaped in the Holy Land, but considering other writers, I think Henry Adams, uh, um, uh, of the time, um, uh, it's really quite... You showed a lot of contempt for... Yeah, Henry, absolutely contemptuous of Jews. Um, Mark Twain is remembered for his liberal attitudes towards them. How much of that was shaped by having visited the Holy Land is very hard for me to know. I tend to think 
that his experiences in Europe are more important. but it's interesting. So someone had asked, I just want to give that question or props. Did Mark Twain write with a Jewish audience in mind, which you just answered? Okay, Um, Uh, yeah, I don't know that he wrote this book so much for Jews, but later, concerning the Jews was once very, very widely known and respected and uh, very significant because it comes out at a moment uh, when intellectual anti-Semitism has suddenly resurged in America. Uh, rather timely to think of that moment. Uh, Goldwyn Smith, one of the great intellectuals, some of you know the building at Cornell, named for him and so on, uh, has argued Jews didn't fight in the Civil War. Jews are never loyal to their country. And so Mark Twain's defense of Jews very significant at that time, was deeply appreciated, and he was a great favorite of of Jews. Um, And his irreverence was was liked by Jews, um, which is why someone like Sholem Aleichem is described by some Jews as uh, he's the Jewish Mark Twain. Um, uh, That bespeaks the idea that you liked Mark Twain, uh, especially given the way people like Sholem Aleichem, the great Yiddish writer. So we we emphasized how disappointed and how desolate uh, Palestine seemed to him. So someone pushes back and says, was Mark Twain at all inspired by his trip to the Holy Land? There are moments in the book where you get a sense that uh, even against his will, he's excited by something he's seen. And that makes perfect sense because look at the age. Uh, if you, you've lived your whole life in, in America, going to the land of Israel uh, uh, is uh, uh, astonishing. Uh, I well remember taking a this is the reverse, taking a bunch of uh, Israelis to Plymouth Rock. And one of them said, oh, but that happened in Turkish times, (laughs) translating. Um, And uh, uh, so, you know, that certainly must have been there. Uh, But I think compared to what he imagined, and it's clear that he's had a Bible open Hmm. uh, writing, uh, innocence abroad, and he retells various stories. You know, compared to what he imagined, this is not exactly a land flowing with milk and honey that he sees, and it's that disjunction uh, that he explores. Of course, it does make it even more remarkable that within a few decades, you're going to go and see people who want to reclaim this land. That is certainly not what Mark Twain ends up thinking, but other folks do. And, uh, uh, you know, that's for another day and another book. Uh, But to read Innocence Abroad is to see how remarkable the Zionist enterprise is. Now, I'm aware that that's not the way it's usually viewed today, and it's viewed in all sorts of other guises, but one could do worse than to read that book and to read some of the other uh, literature on uh, the Holy Land that's coming out in the middle decades of, 
of the 19th century, um, and then you know to see what what's going to be written right after the Balfour Declaration. We're in the 20s. You have so much activity, including by American Jews who are going to go off uh, to the land of Israel, and 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 they're going to transform it. Um, I haven't done it myself, although it would be interesting to go and read this next to Henrietta Zold's <laughs> long discussion of Palestine, which uh, she writes in the beginning of the 20th century. She's made a visit there uh, in the first decade of the 20th century after uh, her love affair went bad, and... Um, uh, and uh, comparing how the two of them, coming from utterly different places, write about uh, Zion, both from an American perspective, both were American-born and so on, uh, would be quite extraordinary. She does not, um, although she must have known, everybody knew Mark Twain's book, and a lot of travelers took it with them. Um, a lot of travelers took it with them, including reputedly U.S. Grant. Um, uh, she does not write about Palestine that way. And hers is very influential. It would be interesting to compare. Interesting. The, um, I, not that I would ever get political, but when you read Mel Melville and you read Mark Twain, you see that the, the claim that the Holy Land was desolate didn't start with Zionist propaganda. No, no, no. It, was, it started uh, they, with, with uh, uh, a clear-eyed view of what was going on in that. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, a land without a people for a people, for a people without a land. Uh, uh, although that, that was really Israel's Angles line. Um, I have to say that Melville, like Steinbeck, they're influenced by an event he doesn't mention, but which had a big impact on America. And that is that there was an American, very, very religious woman named Clorinda Minor. She had gone to the Holy Land um, after the Messiah didn't come, and she expected the Messiah to come uh, in the 1840s. And, and then a lot of tragedies happened to Clorinda Minor. She goes there, and she founds a, a settlement, Mount Hope. And all of these folks who went to the Holy Land uh, in the 50s would stay there. And she even wrote letters about her good relations with her neighbors and so on. And then one day, uh, her neighbors, the Arabs, come and slaughter and rape. And it, it is an, uh, much written about every paper. It's investigated by Congress. And that sets an image of the danger of Palestine, an image of the Arab that stays a long time, and he must have known of the, of the outrage of, uh, at, at Jaffa because uh, this is an aspect of the book we haven't talked about, but he has also met uh, other religious figures, most notably George J. Adams, who uh, was a Mormon schismatic and has sailed off uh, with uh, a bunch of other Mormon schismatics from Maine uh, to the land of Israel. They're also bitterly disappointed, um, and the Messiah didn't come. Uh, and, uh, and, yes. some of, yes. and, and some of them are going to come back 
uh, on, on this ship, and others are going to stay and do a big business in tourism. <laughs> and that tourism is a new industry that they get into, and I'm sure influenced again by this big transformation uh, that, uh, that, that this trip really represents. Well, thank you, Professor Jonathan Sarner. What a delight. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.